0: We're learning the hard way as a culture that justice is not easy to dispense. You know, we have a, a limited justice system that's inherently broken and fails often, and that's unfortunate. Man, I hope, and especially these big cases, I hope they get it right. I really do. But man, I am shocked at our collective arrogance when it comes to judging decisions being made about particular circumstances. And I'm talking about the big case this week and a million other big cases and sometimes small cases. We all know sometimes those who have done wrong go free. And we all know that sometimes they get it right and and those who are wrong are punished. And man, I hope they get it right. But I am shocked at the number of people that uh, just in our culture at large, and I've done it myself, where we immediately jump to a conclusion. They're guilty or they're innocent. And I grew up in California during the OJ Simpson drama, okay, right? So we've all lived this before. I mean, you know, we were going through the cycles over and over again. And we all, you know, oh, I know they're guilty, they're innocent. Of course, I haven't known anybody who's ever been on a jury of any of these big cases, but that's, uh, you know, neither here nor there, is it? The fact is, we're not impartial judges, are we? Our experience, our emotions, they get in the way. And the fact is, again, the. The idea that we could somehow be the arbiters of justice, that's a dangerous, dangerous line to walk. Because we're all about justice, aren't we? Until it's when it comes to me. I want the police to get those guys speeding through my neighborhood, but not when I'm the one speeding. I I want them to come down hard, right? When there's corruption and oppression there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, but not, not in my... I mean, Well, hold on a second. I have a plausible reason for why the rules don't apply to me here. We all want justice, but not really. At least not often when it comes to us. You see, you read in the history of Israel, and the just and right thing for both kingdoms. I mean, we've come, we're in 2 Kings 13, I and mean, we've seen so much of it. The, the right and just thing for both kingdoms is for them each to be judged by God. They have failed repeatedly to love God, to value God, to worship God. They have instead chosen to go with the culture, to worship the gods of the culture, to worship money and family and success and all the things that that entails. They've done all of that repeatedly over and over again. And so if we want to be people about justice, right, we have to be consistent. And if we're going to be consistent about that, we'd have to acknowledge that Israel and Judah deserve the judgment of God. But every once in a while, we come to, and we must come to, a chapter like 2 Kings 13, which explains so clearly that Israel blew it and deserved the judgment of God. And yet what happens, as we'll see this morning, is that God is not only just and not only righteous, He is also merciful and gracious. And frankly, our concept of justice and our understanding of the grace of God are often in tension because they're going to pull it in opposite ways. But we'll see this morning how actually God glorifies Himself by both holding the line on justice and offering grace that nobody deserves. Now we're going to pick it up actually this morning at the end of chapter 12 and just get the last few uh, verses on Joash of the southern kingdom and then we're going to get into Jehoahaz of the northern kingdom, and then another Jehoash of the northern kingdom. And you're like confused already? Don't worry, we'll get through it, okay? Just work with me here. But this is in verse 19 of chapter 12, just catching up with the the end of Joash's reign from last week. The rest of the events of Joash's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Joash served, uh, excuse me, Joash's servants conspired against him and attacked him at Beth Milo on the road that goes down to Scylla. It was his servants Jehoshaphat, son of Shimeath, and Jehoshaphat, son of Shomer, who attacked him. He died, and they buried him with his ancestors in the city of David, and his son Amaziah became king in his place. As a reminder from last week, Joash of the southern kingdom, not a good king, a bad king, wicked king, did not do right in the sight of God. He was uh, actually assassinated here but because of God's covenant with David, his son Amaziah actually did take uh, the throne in his place. And he was actually, you know, Joash was so bad, we don't get it in, in 2 Kings, but in Chronicles we find out that he actually executed the son of Jehoiada, the priest who raised him. So this priest had raised him and, you know, taught him to love God, and he had rejected that and then actually had that guy's son executed because he didn't like his preaching. So, I mean, it was you know, he was not a, not a positive role model. But that leads right into a ping-pong back up to the northern kingdom, And it's the same stuff going on up there. Watch chapter 13, verse 1. In the 23rd year of Judah's king, Joash, son of Ahaziah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Verse 3, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to King Hazael of Aram and to his son Ben-Hadad during their reigns. If you stop right there, often that's as far as we ever get in, in our consideration, especially of others, where we see people do wrong, and we say, yes, Hand them over, Lord, to the Arameans. They deserve it. The Lord was angry. His anger burned against Israel. Why? Because they continued in idolatry. The specific idolatry that's mentioned here was the worshiping of these golden uh, young bulls that were set up at the northern and southern parts of the northern kingdom. It was all worship of convenience, drive-through worship, if you will. And, uh, you know, they worshiped these Canaanite gods. Maybe they called them Yahweh. It's not totally clear, but one way or another, it wasn't right what they were doing. God commanded them not to do it. He had called them to worship him for who he is, not who the culture says he is around them. And so they were violating all those, uh, all those uh, you know, teachings that God had given them through the law. So the Lord's anger burned against them rightly, and he handed them over to, uh, to the Arameans. And that's the general historical context of the reign of Jehoahaz of the northern kingdom. And so we're like, yeah, that's, they deserve it, and rightly so. But watch verse 4 then jehoahaz sought the lord's favor right yahweh's favor and the lord heard him for he saw the oppression the king of aram inflicted on israel before we get just before we run on ahead you got to just know this okay jehoahaz in verse 2 he did not he did what was evil in the sight of the lord he did not turn away from the, the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel in. He continued all of that. This is not a holy man, not a righteous man, not a worshiper of God. And yet here, and because of his sin and the sin of the nation, they're handed over to their enemies and they're suffering. And this guy, Jehoahaz, has, has he has a moment, right? Which, honestly, I'm not super optimistic about this guy's moment. Where he's like, I need help and I'm out of, other, I'm out of answers, you know, so I'm just, I'm going to pray to Yahweh. I'm going to pray to the God of our ancestors. I'm going to ask him for help. We have no reason to believe that this is some kind of legitimate reformation in his heart or he's come around to the real deal. This is an unworthy man asking God for help. And just note verse 4 one more time. He sought the Lord's favor and the Lord heard him. For he saw the oppression the king of Aram inflicted on Israel. Therefore, verse 5, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, and they escaped from the power of the Arameans. Well, then the people of Israel returned to their former way of life. If you just pause there before we get into that, we have the Lord answering the prayer of Jehoahaz. And you're hearing this language, and some of you may have already picked up on it, but this is all echoing the book of Judges. So back in the book of Judges, it was the same song, right? Just a different verse. That Israel would sin, they would do what was evil, they would do what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes. He would hand them over to a a neighboring people group to oppress them, and then they would repent, and then the Lord would send a deliverer. And then they would sin again, and then the Lord would hand them over, and then they would repent, and he would send a deliverer. This all would be happening over and over again in the book of Judges. It keeps going, and that cycle essentially hasn't changed even in 2 Kings 13, where they've sinned, they've continued their idolatry, yet Jehoahaz seeks mercy from God and once again Without good reason, God provides deliverance for these people. And we don't know who the deliverer is. There's room for discussion there, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it was an individual. It could have been the king of Assyria. It's plausible that Assyria came and attacked the Arameans, whatever. The point is, one way or another, it was from God. God had provided relief for their suffering, and he rescued them by sending a deliverer. <laughs> now, now, so we're ready, right? Jehoahaz will repent and lead the nation of the the northern kingdom, right? He'll lead them in a reformation, and they will turn and seek the Lord. Verse 5, Then the people of Israel returned to their former way of life, but they didn't turn away from the sins that the house of Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Jehoahaz continued them, and the Asherah pole also remained standing in Samaria. This is uh, the Asherah pole. It was like a, basically for modern analogy, like a totem pole, that they would stand up in worship of a particular uh, Canaanite goddess, and uh, it was a fertility thing. So it was like, if you wanted your family to grow, you wanted to be able to have kids, you couldn't have kids or stuff like that, you'd worship at Asherah, or want blessings in uh, sometimes nationalistic like warfare you know, deal, you worship Asherah. Anyway, so the point is, they're worshiping these golden young bulls, they're worshiping Asherah, they're thinking the Canaanite goddess gives life, right? all this kind of stuff. God has just provided rescue for them, and Jehoahaz, who should put you know, two and two together here, I prayed to Yahweh, then we were delivered, you know, there we go, right? But instead, they just go right back to the same old, same old. And we get some historical details here, Jehovah has in verse 7, did not have an army left except for 50 horsemen, 10, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, uh, because the king of Aram had destroyed them, making them like dust at the threshing. The rest of the events of Jehoahaz's reign, along with all of his accomplishments and his might, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. He prayed, they were delivered, but it was one and done. He did, not, he did not repent. Jehoahaz, verse 9, rested with his ancestors and he was buried in Samaria. His son Jehoahash became king in his place. Now, if you're confused on the J names, we're with you. This guy's name, Jehoash, the next king, it's the same name as Joash of the southern kingdom. And we observed this a couple weeks ago, but there's probably a recognition here that's meant to say you almost can't distinguish between the north and the south, both in who's king when and the character of these men. Before, you know, before we come down too harshly on Jehoahaz and get on to Jehoash, right, we have to acknowledge we've all been there, where we've experienced the grace of God in our lives, and we turned around and went right back to the idol where God's made provision for us. He's been merciful to us. And we said, okay, thanks. Now I'm off to the next. It's not right. Verse 10, in the 37th year of Judah's king Jehoash, Jehoash, and I appreciate the spelling distinction there to help us keep it straight, but those are like the same name, but Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. Guess what? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, but he continued them. And the rest of the events of Jehoash's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, and the power he had to wage war against Judah's king, Amaziah, are written in the historical record of Israel's kings. That's civil war. They were were killing each other, right? Jehoash rested with his ancestors, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Listen, here's, here's the problem. The problem is... We don't deserve the grace of God. There's one thing that's clear when you're reading about these kings. They they did not warrant God being gracious to them. This was not how it worked out. It didn't go like this. God looked and saw Jehoahaz and how he reformed himself, and he actually came back to uh, reunite with the southern kingdom and led the people in repentance, and he cleaned up his act, and he cleaned up their act, and then God showed them mercy. But sometimes that's how we think it works. We think if we just clean ourselves up and we can make ourselves better and do self-reformation first, then God will look at us and see us as beautiful and see us as improved and see that we're trying. And then he'll say, you know what? You're giving it a shot. I'll help you out there. And then he'll come and rescue us. That's not the equation here. The equation is these guys are dirty, rotten scoundrels, spiritually speaking. They're stuck in idolatry. They're leading the nation in idolatry. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And they cry out for help, and God says, I will be merciful to you. The problem, right, with God's grace, God's grace is a problem because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Now, there there are kind of two kind of distortions of that truth that kind of can put us into a a bit of a problem. On the one hand, sometimes we just don't believe that. And this is what we'll just call self-righteousness. We're like, yes, there are a lot of people. You're right, Pastor Ryan. There are a lot of people that don't deserve God's grace out there. Amen? Yeah, I know who they are. I see them on my Facebook feed all the time. Those people do not deserve God's grace. <laughs> the implication, of course, is, well, we do. I mean, they don't, but we do. But we don't. You got to get there. We we don't. And You'd have to take it at a personal level, okay? But there are false gods, idols that you and I worship regularly and repeatedly in response to the grace of God that prove we don't deserve God's grace. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. So that's one, the self righteousness thing, that's a problem. But deep down, we kind of act like we do deserve it. But then on the other side, there's some folks that that might take this another direction and they would say, We don't deserve God's grace. You're right, Pastor Wright, and this is, this, the, this is the road of despair. I definitely don't deserve God's grace. I am the worst that there ever was. And then it turns into this self-condemnation cycle and depression where you're in this dark cave where there's no hope at all, and you're just like, uh, yeah, I'm so horrible, I'm so bad, and God doesn't love me, He shouldn't love me, He'll never love me. But the, the problem with that view is, of course, it doesn't take into account the fact that God is gracious. And so you know we can we can go this way oh, I'm, I, I deserve it they don't but I do and or we can take it in this direction and go down into despair but what's happening in this in this chapter is not either of those things there's actually this this different and I would say it's what God calls us to embrace with regard to His justice and His grace where we see that yes there's an acknowledgement of Israel's guilt but there's the affirmation that God is gracious to them anyway now in the midst of that discussion we need to just acknowledge that. That failure to repent and continuing in idolatry is not okay. So, Paul helps us here in Romans 6. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Never. No way. That's not an option. So, what we don't want to say is say, you know what? God's gracious. It's no big deal. Just go back to your idols. No way. We read about these people being delivered and then turning right back to the false gods and the Asherah and all that. And we're like, no, don't do that. It's not right. And God is calling us to have that same attitude in our in our own lives. That man, God's being gracious here, and yeah, they don't deserve it. But have I done that? Have I received God's grace and then gone right back to the false god of money or or pleasure or peer approval or achievement or whatever it is, right? Status, whatever, fashion, whatever it could be, right? I've gone back to this god again because I think that's going to really meet my needs. Or maybe it's more like uh, God got me out of the jam, right? Sometimes we treat the gospel like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, like, oh, I just, I've got this, and, you know, you know, I can use it when I really need it. You kind of get that impression with Jehoahaz praying to Yahweh, like he was out of other options. In fact, we, that's why we get to detail about his troops and army being down to nothing. He, he didn't have any troops left. He, he was down to, you know, not, not much left, so I might as well pray to Yahweh. I got, you know, nothing else to do. Well, that's not sufficient. It's not what God calls us to. But honestly, If God is just and we don't respond to his grace the right way, then what hope do we genuinely have? And so in the chapter, we get now this record of these two bizarre events regarding the death and actually after the death of the prophet Elisha. And they seem random. Work with me this morning. They are not random. Okay, let's walk through it, and we'll see how the author connects them all together here even at the end of the chapter. But watch these two events. This is so remarkable. So we've got these two kings of the northern kingdom. They're terrible, just like Joash of the southern kingdom. All that, we've, we've got it. God's grace, uh, you know, awkwardly there. All right, let's work through it. Verse 14, when Elisha became sick with the illness from which he died, King Jehoash of Israel went down and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel— Pause there. Joash has done evil. What is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Elisha is older, and he's gotten sick, and he's not going to recover. And so uh, Joash at least acknowledges here that Elisha had been used by God to bring military victory and provision to Israel. So he at least knew that, you know, Elisha was the real deal. And although it didn't affect him personally with faith, he went to him and he, and he wept over his death. Probably, maybe partially because it was just a practical thing that, you know, like Elisha dies and then they're toast, you know, like they've lost. And he calls them, you know, the, he says, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's a title that was used for Elisha as well, or Elijah in uh, 2 Kings 2, because God uses these prophets to mediate his power to deliver Israel. So that was he, they were a means of grace to Israel. And so he's like, you know, yeah, you were used by God to do great things for us, and I'm sad that you're dying. And then, really bizarre thing, Elisha responded, verse 15, Get a bow and arrows. So he got a bow and arrows. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, Grasp the bow. So the king grasped it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Elisha said, Open the east window. So he opened it. Elisha Elisha said, Shoot. So he shot. Then Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory. Yes, the arrow of victory over Aram. You are to strike down the Arameans and Aphek until you have put an end to them. Okay, pause there. This is the most bizarre death scene I've ever, like, you know, this is weird, okay? But you just got to know that the prophets often performed sign acts. They actually acted out a message. And even here in his weakness, Elisha does that with King Jehoahaz. This is still, they're still under the oppression of the Arameans, which was a consequence of their sin, as we read at the beginning of the chapter. And so Elisha says, grab this bow and arrow, and then Elisha puts his prophetic hands over the king's hands, and he's open the window, they open the window, and then they shoot together this arrow, and he says this is the arrow that represents victory, the Lord giving victory over the Arameans. How does that happen? How does that arrow fly? That arrow only flies by the blessing of God coming through the prophet declaring the word of God. You see, it's the prophet who mediates the power and grace of God for Israel here. And in the sign act, the point is, if the king had just shot it on his own, no victory. But when the prophet holds it with him, now there's victory. Because the, pro- the prophetic ministry of delivering the word of God, that is the power of God working for his people. So if the prophet's not involved, we've we got a problem. So that's this, the image of the sign. Then he, there's an, another part, though, of this uh, sign act. Uh, he says in verse 18, Then Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took the rest of the arrows, right? Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and stopped. Weird. Verse 19. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you had put an end to them. But now you will strike down Aram only three times. What you need to learn from this is if a prophet ever tells you to strike the ground with arrows, you strike five or six times, not three times. How, what? What is going on? Listen, this what what this is about is enthusiasm. It turns out Jehoah, uh, Jehoah, Jehoash's heart is not in this, and so he says, "Hit the ground with the arrows." And probably at this point, he's rolling his eyes at the old prophet, like seriously, you know. So he does this kind of teenager cleaning their room thing, like you know, three half-hearted, sorry, teenagers. You're, it's. It's accurate. But anyway, they they hit the, you know, they hit the, hits the ground three times. And Elisha, who was perpetually frustrated at the lack of faith in Israel's kings, says, you can't even hit the ground right. You should have hit it five or six or ten times, man. Haven't you learned? It was the arrow of victory. Like, this is all, this is all showing that God is going to be gracious and provide for you. And that doesn't hit you at all? Haven't we been there, though? Where we should be passionate for God and enthusiastic and are chasing after God, and instead we're just kind of like, roll our eyes. It's remarkable. Verse 20 and 21. I mean, then Elisha died, really just catch verse 20. Then Elisha died and was buried. Okay. Then it gets really weird. Now, Moabite raiders used to come into the land in the spring of the year. You just got to know that important background. Verse 21. Once, as the Israelites were burying a guy, suddenly they saw a raiding party. So they threw the man into Elisha's tomb. When Elisha, excuse me, when he touched Elisha's bones, the man revived and stood up. You thought the arrows were weird. These guys. So... They, they didn't bury it underground, they buried it in caves, okay? In Old Testament burial style, they would, not, uh, th- they would lay the body out like on a slab and let it decompose over time. And then when it was decomposed, they would throw the bones in a big pile. So Elisha's uh, dead, like not totally probably decomposed, but he's just he's been dead and he's there for a while. There's an open entrance to the cave at this point, right? They're there, they're putting the barrel, they're doing the barrel of this other guy, random guy. And then the Moabite raiders come in. And they can't finish the, the ceremony and the bear, like they get so they're like, ah, we gotta go. And they, whoop, they chuck the body in, right? I'm not making this up. This is not a, so they chuck the body in and they just throw him on the slab right on top of Elisha's bones, and then they hightail it out of there, right? This dead guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when he touched Elisha's bones, the man revived and stood up. We don't know what happens with the Raiders. I don't know. Did he survive? We don't know. We don't know. But he was raised to life just by coming into contact with the dead bones of the prophet of God. You want to talk about God's power and God's grace? He says, you shoot the arrow with the prophetic provision there and watch, this is the arrow of victory. If you will heed the word of the prophet, the word of God, this is what happens. God provides. This is what he's doing through the prophetic ministry of the word. And it's so powerful that Elisha is dead and his body is rotting and you throw a dead body on that prophet's bones and it's not Elisha's power. It's the power of God mediated through the prophet to prove a point. Nobody deserves God's grace. They don't deserve deliverance from the Arameans. And yet, God says, I will provide it. That guy who died, why did he deserve a second chance more than anybody else? He didn't. But man, God's grace, it raises the dead. And there's something to that, isn't there? That the grace of God raises the dead in connection with the prophetic proclamation of his word that God's grace is powerful and effective. In Ezekiel thirty-seven, different prophet, different time, similar vision though. He has this uh, or similar image. He has this vision where he sees Israel as a, a in a valley and they're just dead bones. You know this. You know this one. And God tells the pre- prophet Ezekiel. He says, "Preach to the bones." And I know how he feels preaching to dead people. It's hard. You know, like it's like they're. <laughs> That's, yeah, anyway. So what does he do? He says, he says, preach to the bones. Preach, proclaim the word of God to the dead bones. And so Ezekiel does it. And you know, the bones, they stand up, they come together, they grow flesh, and now there's a standing army there. Where there was no hope and death, there is now hope and life. Because of the power of God working through the word of God. The grace of God raises the dead. In all of this, there's a recognition, wow, Israel really should recognize how worthy God is to be, to be worshipped and to be depended on. But the fact is, they need more of that prophetic ministry. I mean, it was really cool, Elisha and the guy you know, rising from the dead just by touching his bones and all that. But honestly, they need more of that. They need a better king, and honestly, they need even a greater prophet. And there's this anticipation here for the greatest son of David who will come, who will also be known as the great prophet with a capital P. And what what will that prophet do? Well, he'll teach and he'll proclaim the grace of God, and then he will make a way for God to be gracious by dying for our sins. And his body was laid out to decompose as well. Except he didn't stay dead. And when that prophet rose from the dead, he proclaimed, let's go. The grace of God raises the dead. And he is is the ultimate fulfillment of this, the little hint and taste of the grace of God we see here in 2 Kings 13. And his name is Jesus the Messiah. We need a prophet who gives grace Not just by us touching his dead bones, but by conquering death for us. And that's what Jesus has accomplished. Again, you know, if I told you there was a place where there was some prophet's body, you could take dead bodies there and they could be raised. I mean, we would do it because we love people and we hate death and and we would go there to do that. But Jesus has made it possible for all to experience this resurrection unto life because he didn't stay dead. He conquered sin and death. Again, the grace of God raises the dead. And so we have this, again, this awkwardness between the justice of God and the grace of God. And what we see in the great prophet Jesus is what? Is that the two can come together in him. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where his justice and his mercy meet. How does that work? The cross declares that God is just. Because Jesus was publicly punished for our sin. No one can say, well, they didn't pay their debt or it wasn't actually taken care of. No, Jesus stood in our place and he bore the wrath of God for our sins. And so God can justly say, I have dealt with sin. And yet at the same time, why is Jesus hanging on the cross, taking our place? It's so that he can offer us grace and forgiveness and mercy. So God can redeem us. And no one can say it's not fair. He didn't deal with the problem. He did deal with the problem. He dealt with it on the cross. And God's grace is doing this thing of raising the dead by God being both just and the one who makes us right. We're just. He's just and he's merciful. And that is the good news. So often, just culturally speaking, we misunderstand the gospel as this weak sauce message of God just sweeps your sin under the rug and says, eh, I'm good. Listen, it comes in expressions of like, well, God is love. Well, God is love. More on that in a minute. Okay, God is love, but that's not all God is. And so when you get this, you know, weakened Disney version of God where God's like, eh, your sin, it's not that big of a deal, then all of a sudden nothing's a big deal, is it? And there is no standard. And God's certainly not just or holy or righteous, Right? Obviously, there can be the extreme on the other side where people might overemphasize God's justice to the neglect of his love and grace, and just all they do is come down hard on people. And frankly, sometimes we do that. I'm looking at you, Facebook, right? Like, it's, sometimes it's easy to just come down, come down on people and judge and judge and judge and never offer hope. So that's, that's certainly a thing. But here's the reality. In the cross, what do we have? We have both. We have God saying, I am just, watch me save. I have made provision for your sin and failure. You don't deserve my grace, but I'm giving it to you, and I'm making it legal and right that I can now offer you forgiveness. This is is the good news. And it's all here connected to the prophet, the great king, the one that Israel needed, the one that we need. Did you know that both the apostle Paul and the apostle John refer to the message of gospel as the word of life? That's an expression that means it's the message that gives life. Because the grace of God raises the dead. And so the message of the gospel creates life first of all in our conversion. The moment you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and you trust in him, when you, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you put your faith in that message, okay, you are immediately brought to spiritual life. In Ephesians chapter uh, 2, the Apostle Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by faith we've been made alive in Christ. I think they have that for you in your bulletin this morning, but we've been made alive in Christ. So that's the initial conversion. Boom, that happens. God's grace raises the dead. You've been raised to newness of life. The word gives life, but that's not the only way the word gives life. If we think about the prophetic ministry reverberating through their message, we have this recognition that, wow, God's word continues to work, even after the prophet is dead and gone, or even after the prophet has risen from the dead and commissioned his messengers. How else does the word give us life? Well, it reveals the glory of God. So as we read this this word, this message from the prophets and from the great prophet Jesus, what happens is we see God's glory on display. Even in a, a, a kind of unusual chapter like 2 Kings 13, the word of God also gives life by exposing our sin. It shows us our own failures. It directs us to repent of what is wrong in us. You know, this idea that Christians are... People who act like they don't have sin, I, they're just not very Christian then, are they? Because, man, the Word of God shows us this is where we struggle, this is where we fail. It doesn't do so for condemnation, though. It does so with hope, with hope of forgiveness. The Word of God gives life in that it leads us into what faith-driven obedience looks like. It says, here, this is the way to go, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to direct us. And we need to know how to act and how to behave and, and what should i do and how should i do it it's the word that gives life it models for us worship living for god's glory in every pursuit of our lives you see the grace of god does raise the dead you know the first time israel read second kings 13 they were in exile and They didn't didn't heed the message of the prophets. They were stuck in exile as punishment. And we'll get to that as we work through the end of 2 Kings. But here's the reality. As they read that, the prophets, um, you know, the prophets that they knew, right, they were gone. And there were other prophets that ministered to them in exile. But for the moment, you know, the old prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were gone. They didn't have that same kind of prophetic, you know, provision for them. But maybe this chapter is meant to say, hey, Israel, don't forget about the word of God. Even when you've lost hope, even when it's a funeral cut short by marauding Moabites, <laughs> you don't forget about the power and the grace that's mediated through the Word of God. Maybe there's just a reminder, hey, you, you might be in exile now, but you won't be forever. His Word has power. And yes, the arrow of the Lord, there will be victory because of the enabling of the Word of God. And yes, there's hope for even those who feel as though they have no hope. Why? Because, well, God's grace raises the dead. Now, there are two incidents here that are proof of God's unconditional love, but in the end of the chapter, we get a nice summary that really wraps it all together and shows us how this applies to the problem of God's grace. Now, this is the summary of how this all played out. King Hazael of Aram oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and turned toward them. Why? Because they got their act together. No. Because they finally figured out they were doing wrong. No. Because they were well attractive and he figured he could use them. No. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the thing. That covenant is like over a thousand years old at this point. And God says, because I promised, I'll show them grace. Notice the the abundance of language here, okay? Verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them, and he had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let's keep going, he was not willing to destroy them, though he should, even now he has not banished them from his presence, though he should. I mean, at the time of the writing of, of 2 Kings, the author's like, we still don't deserve God's grace, and yet he is still stubbornly fulfilling his covenant promise to love us and to provide for us. So God's gracious with them, and he's compassionate with them, that vivid image. He turns toward them, you know how it happens in a relationship when there's conflict and struggle and, and the, you know, the offended party or both parties just turn their backs on each other, sometimes literally and just walk away. Right? They, want, they want physical distance from each other because of the conflict. And here are people who have turned their backs on God and who continue to walk in the wrong direction, and God turns toward them. And God says, I love you, and I will be gracious to you, and compassionate. You don't don't deserve this. It's not because of something you've done, but I love you, and and I want to rescue you. That is the grace of God. And then, verse 24 and 25, historical details, but fulfilling the arrow thing. King Hazael of Aram died, and his son Ben-Hadad became king in his place. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, took back from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the cities that Hazael had taken in war from Jehoash's father, Jehoahaz, Jehoash defeated Ben-Hadad three times. Remember, three times he hit the ground. Three times he defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Why? Because God's grace abounds. Because he promised he would provide. Because he made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he fulfills his covenant promises by loving people who are not worthy to be loved. And so he provided this victory for them. God's grace persists. Why? Why? Because of his covenant love and faithfulness. That's why God shows us grace. It is so crucial that we get this. Not just intellectually, but that we believe it. Because, once again, we have these these pitfalls, right? Why would God love us? Why would God love us? Well, you know, we, we could say, because we're lovely, because we obeyed, because we've compensated for our failures, because we're more righteous than our neighbors, none of which, of course, is true, right? And so it's not like God looks at us and says, okay, they've gotten their act together now, I will love them. No, why does God love us? It's because of His character. It's because of who He is, not because of who we are. You see, that's the basis of God's love for us. It shows His greatness for Him to turn towards sinners and to reach out in grace and to rescue us. That's what's on display in 2 Kings 13. So, this is an antidote to self righteousness. We're back over here. If you're, this, you're struggling with self righteousness, how wicked are they? And you're not that wicked, so probably God is good with you. God is not good with you. Your self righteousness is offensive to Him. That's pride and arrogance, and it's wrong. It's glorifying yourself. You are the idol, like we talked about last week, okay? So if that's where you are, this message, this message that God's grace persists just because of his covenant love and faithfulness, it says, you know what? You deserve judgment, but God's grace persists. And he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. And that's the antidote to self-righteousness. I'm not righteous, but man, God's grace persists because of who he is, his covenant love. Or over here, if we're in despair, it's also the antidote to despair and shame and guilt, right? Hiding in this dark cave where, in this case, the message is God's grace persists because of his covenant love and faithfulness. And yes, when you see your sin rightly, we mourn it. But that mourning is not the last word. The last word is you are forgiven, you are are embraced, you are rescued and redeemed. You have hope and you have life in Christ. God's grace raises the dead. You have hope. You can come out of that cave and you can be you can be comforted by the persistent grace of God. That's not based on your performance or your attractiveness, but it's based on His covenant love and faithfulness. It's because He's, it's because He's gracious. We can feel that forgiveness. God's grace persists because of His covenant love and faithfulness. You just got to think of 1 John 4, verse 10. Here is love. Not that we loved God, But that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't say, Who loves me? Okay, I'll save those folks. Here is love, not that we love God. He said, They're off, they've all got their backs to me. Let me rescue. And he sent his son. You can't earn that love, you can't lose that love. God's grace persists. I was thinking about our wedding vows. Uh, Lindsay's out of town, so I've been thinking a lot about our wedding vows. Hoping she comes home. (laughs) Feeling pretty good about that. At this point, she promised she would. Um, See, I'll let you know on Tuesday. So um, imagine if you wrote your own wedding vows, though, and you were like, this is kind of how it is today, actually. Uh, I commit to love you as long as I like you. I commit to love you as long as you are attractive to me. I commit to love you as long as your weight and behavior stays in this certain range, right? I commit to love you as long as our bank account has a certain amount of... I commit to love you as long as right. we have all, all these things, and we would never say it that way, but man, sometimes that's exactly how we live. In fact, at art today, the current thing is, I'm not even going to commit to love you until all, you know I can check all these boxes off, and probably won't even do it then. What if What if our love was modeled on God's love, though? I mean, it looks different, doesn't it? In fact, the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning had an unpublished sonnet that was found after her death that she had written to her husband, Robert Browning. You may be familiar with this. But it just, it really captures the essence of this genuine divine love. Listen to what she wrote. If thou must love me, let it be for naught except for love's sake only. Do not say, I love her for her smile, her looks, her way, of speaking gently for a trick of thought that falls in well with me, a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. No, for these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee, and love so wrought may be unwrought so. Neither love me for thine own dear pities, wiping my cheeks dry. A creature might forget to weep, Who bore thy comfort long and lose thy love thereby. But love me for love's sake, that evermore thou mayst love on through love's eternity. She says, if you love me because I'm pretty, I won't always be pretty. If you love me because of how it makes me feel, I might not always feel like that. But just love me for love. And that's the way God's grace works for us. God loves you not because you have it all together not because of a track record of attendance at church or a giving record, not because of the way you've reformed yourself and fixed yourself up. God's love for you persists. His grace persists because of who he is. He loves you because, because he promised to. And his love makes provision in such a way that his justice and his grace can both be magnified. And we can say, look at, look at the glory of God who rescues not people like them, people like me. God's grace persists because of his covenant love and faithfulness. Would you please pray with me and we'll ask God to help us believe in this love. Lord, we pause this morning and in light of uh, 2 Kings 13, Lord, we're wrestling through this challenge of seeing what would be just and right, condemnation and judgment of sinful people, Lord, and Lord, protect us from that arrogance of thinking we know. We know what is ultimately right and thinking that we have the answers. And Lord, thinking that they should be judged and we should not. Lord, if we're honest this morning, we confess corporately and individually, we deserve judgment. Left to ourselves, Lord, we are not holy. We do not love you as we should. But Lord, we've seen so clearly in this passage your undeserved grace. Lord, the side of your character that shows us that you are merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Lord, that you are persistent in the expression of your covenant faithfulness and love for us. Lord, we see it in these details and we recognize that it's a function of your word providing this grace. Lord, that your word brings us to life. And we thank you for that word. And we thank you that Jesus, you are the word who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Lord, we thank you that by faith in not only your death, but your resurrection, Lord, that that we see that you are just and merciful. Lord, forgive us for self-righteousness, thinking we don't need forgiveness. But Lord, also forgive us for despair of forgetting of your love for us. And Lord, help us to remember that you are just and you are gracious. You have made provision for us in the cross, and therefore... It is right and good for us to repent of our sin and to love you and to believe you and to live for you now. So help us to respond rightly to your love. Help us to learn this lesson, not to go back to the false gods, Lord, but help us to move forward in faith and remember that your love for us is not conditioned on our performance and our attractiveness, but Lord, it is a function of who you are. And therefore, Lord, we are secure in your love. May we be confident, Lord, not in ourselves, but in you. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.